Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, this last month here, we've begun a series, Can I Trust My Bible? Can I Trust My Bible? And today, we're looking at one of the theological issues about the Bible, and that is its inspiration, is a theological term. Is the Bible inspired by God? Is it God's word or not? In 1879, I was five, and Lieutenant George DeLong set out with a crew on the USS Jeanette in hopes of claiming the North Pole for the U.S., Ooh, I know, I get it. DeLong's plans were based on maps developed by mapmakers at that time called cartographers. Like most mapmakers, Dr. August Heinrich Peterman believed there was an open polar ice-free sea teeming with marine life whose waters could be smoothly sailed much as one might sail across the Caribbean or the Mediterranean. Imagine the ads to get sailors for that trip. You're going to white sand beaches, you know, with bronzed people tanning on them to the North Pole. Unfortunately, every previous expedition that had sailed north in search of the sea had run into a problem, ice. Now, you might think that running into ice every time would lead scientists to abandon the theory of an open polar sea. Not so. Instead, they doubled down. Peterman merely modified the original theory by adding the idea of a thermometric gateway. As Hampton Sides recounts this story in his book, In the Kingdom of Ice, if an explorer could just bust through this icy circle, preferably in a ship with a reinforced hull, he would eventually find open water and enjoy smooth sailing to the North Pole. The trick was to find a gap in the ice, a natural portal of some kind, and then it's like the Caribbean, baby. George DeLong and his crew of 28 men wanted to find that portal. It didn't take long for DeLong to realize that all the cartographers, scientists, and geographers had been wrong. He wrote... I pronounce a thermometric gateway to the North Pole a delusion and a snare. Eventually, he began to doubt the existence of the, polar, of the open polar sea, and he and his men encountered ice that seemed to stretch out forever. DeLong and his crew came to grips with the fact that they had been duped. The team had to replace their wrong-headed ideas with a reckoning of the way that the Arctic really is. They were running up against the rocks or hardened ice of reality. So in September of that year, the USS Jeanette got trapped in the ice pack and the crew escaped and tried to go toward Siberia. The crew got separated. Some made it to Siberia and survived. Others continued their lonely trek through the ice. As for George Washington DeLong, he died in October of 1881 of starvation. If a map cannot be trusted, you will be lost. Lives depend on exactness. They depend on when you get maps that have you know, depths of oceans, etc. Ships depend on those things being right or they run their hulls into the shoals and they are lost. Precision matters. Coordinates cannot just be speculation. They cannot be guesses. Maps have to be perfect. 
The Bible is like a spiritual map. It claims internally to be absolute truth. It claims to reflect God's values. Therefore, the morals it tells us to live our lives by, the ethics it tells us to to live our lives by, are coming from God. It claims to give us both human history and salvation history. It claims to be the only path to heaven. If it's wrong, if its coordinates are off, if it was just a good guess, we're not just making a minor mistake. We are leading people astray. We are giving false hope. We are, according to Paul, naive fools in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, if the resurrection really isn't true, the apostle Paul says, you're foolish for being here today. The coordinates must be right. So we're in this series, Can I Trust My Bible? When it comes to this issue, there are what's called external proofs and internal proofs. External proofs are other things that prove the Bible other than the Bible itself. They're external issues, like the probability of God was our first sermon. We're talking about issues that aren't necessarily dealt with in the Bible, just the probability of God. You know, could the atheist be right? Well, they have a problem because they can't explain first cause. What started it all? We can't explain God being infinite and timeless, they can't explain first cause. We all have a problem. So we talked about the probability of God. It's an external proof. Then we said, is the Bible credible as a history book? And we looked at archeology span and history that continues to validate over and over and over the stories of the Bible that are found throughout digs in the Middle East daily. And so that's another external proof. The Bible as history is being proven to be true over and over and over. Last week we talked about the manuscript evidence with the Bible's original autographs and then how quickly they were copied down, how well they were preserved, and how we have the best manuscript evidence of the Bible of any ancient documents. And there's no comparison. Those are external proofs of our faith. Today we're going to start looking at the internal proofs, what the Bible says about itself. Is it God's word or not? So the Bible claims to be inspired. That's the term that we use. The word means God-breathed. Hence, we call it God's word. I believe that's probably the primary verse or word that comes from. It's God's word because it's God-breathed. And if that's true, the implications are huge. Why? Because how we view the Bible inevitably works its way into our behavior. If you have a low view of scripture, you're gonna have a low view of whether you really have to do what it says. If you have a high view of scripture, you're more likely to say, God has spoken, I need to conform my life to that. The Canadian Lutherans, the Canadian Lutheran, I should say, which I believe is, a, is, is a, some sort of paper or magazine, did a study about Canadian Bible reading. And in that study, it went into other issues related to the Bible and Canadians. And they said, the decline in confidence in Scripture as the Word of God is mirrored by a decline in active participation in churches. The CBES found only 18% of Canadians strongly agree that the Bible's the Word of God. Now, that's Canadians at large, not church Canadians, all Canadians. 18% strongly agree the Bible is the Word of God. About 13% of Canadians agree that the Bible is relevant to modern life. 
What is worse, the numbers are staggeringly low among Christians as well. This is where it gets scary. We don't expect the broader population to share our views of the Bible. But listen to this. 23% of Canadian Christians believe the Bible is relevant to modern life. All right, so that's one in four of Christians who say, yeah, this really matters. By contrast, those who still hold a high view of Scripture are far more likely to be active Christians. Those who strongly agree, Canadian Christians, those who strongly agree that the Bible is the Word of God are ten times more likely to read it, at least a few times a week, than those who only moderately agreed. And this same group who believe the Bible is the Word of God are six times more likely to go to church to attend weekly religious services than those who just moderately agree the Bible is the Word of God. You see, what we think about the Bible really, really does shape our behavior. It's extremely difficult to motivate ethics that are consistent with the Bible if we question the Bible's origins and whether it's really God's word or God has anything to do with it. And the trends are alarming. So I just quoted some things about Canadian culture. Let's look at the uh, empire to the south here. I almost called it the evil empire just to make you like me, but I didn't. The trends are alarming. So you've got Lifeway Research, uh, which is a U.S. research company. In the U.S., you know, much bigger church presence, much bigger population. There's a lot of money spent on this kind of research in the U.S., so it's a great sort of indicator of where Christianity in the West is going. And they did this along with, I believe it's called Legionnaire Ministries or Legionnaire Ministries, and, and they sort of surveyed the trend Brennan just sent me this last week. They surveyed the trend in how Americans view certain issues over the last like eight to 10 years. So here's the statement. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. So this is just a test statement. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths but is not literally true. U.S. adults in 2014, 41% agreed with that. I mean, yeah, there's some good stories, the whole Jesus guy, but it's not really truth. 2022, 53% agreed with that. So that's a 12% movement away from believing the Bible is God's word in eight years. Now, I know that doesn't sound like much with the the rapidity of change in the world today, but that's a pretty big historic move in a short period of time. The trend is not good. Listen to this. Among you, no, this is among evangelicals. So Bethany would be an evangelical church, sort of conservative Protestant, but known, the word would be evangelical, believe in the gospel. In 2016, so only six years ago, 17% agreed with that statement of evangelicals. The first was U.S. adults, 41% agreed, then 53% agreed. Now we're talking about people in evangelical churches conservative Protestant churches. 17% agreed the Bible's mythological and it's not God's word. Those are the churchgoers. And in 2022, six years later, 26% agreed. So in six years, you've had a 9% increase in the church population. Hey, you don't have to worry about this. It's just a bunch of myths. That should scare us to death about the future of the kingdom of God. So let's look at the Bible's claims about itself. First, the promise. God was involved in the creation of Scripture. So I'm going to read the key verse and the key passage on the subject of inspiration. 
There's not a whole passage in the Bible about this subject anywhere. We get bits and pieces throughout. Uh, this passage is actually about the characteristics of the last days. And what I was going to do is I was just going to read you the key verse, but I read through the overall passage. I'm like, this is so fascinating because it is so telling of the world we live in that I really want you to read the whole passage because it's, it's, it's telling of the world we live in both secularly and the church world as well, theologically. So this is uh, 2 Timothy 3. If you have a Bible near you, it's 2 Timothy 3. The one in front of you in the pew, it's page 166 in the New Testament. So it's about most of the way through to the right, page 166. 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to read this whole chapter. It's not a long chapter. It's about the size of a psalm. And I'm going to go into the next chapter. I want you to see how Paul describes the last days and the connection to the word of God. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times are going to come. Men are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money. Lovers of self, that's a, that's a reference to social media. That was funny, actually. Thank you. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So it doesn't mean they're not religious. They're all these bad things and they're still going to church some. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, just as James or Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, uh, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. Now he's talking to Timothy. Persecutions and sufferings. Just as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now here's the verse. That's the context. All scripture, what I'm encouraging you to, to learn, Timothy, what you learn from your, your grandma and your mother, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately or adequate, equipped for every good work. And then into chapter four, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, and I am telling you, it is here. Now, I'm not a person who predicts the last days because as far as I would say, Jesus is 2,000 years late. The apostles expected them in their lifetime, so I don't make predictions, but I'm telling you this verse is so appropriate for today's Christian culture. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. 
That is Christianity today. The context here, Paul is in prison awaiting execution. Timothy is part of his spiritual legacy. Paul wants to see him again. He's hoping he can. And Paul gives him sort of, I want to say, sort of the pregame speech. He's talking to this young pastor. He warns about the last days. He warns about church leaders who are not true to the faith and are leading people astray. He warns about persecution, and he's telling Timothy to to sort of expect it. It's just sort of the way things are. And he tells Timothy to continue his journey with God and the scriptures which he was taught by his mom and his grandma. And then he puts up this verse for Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And this is where we get the whole idea of inspiration in the scriptures. All scripture is inspired by God. Every graphe, theopneustos, is inspired. God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, etc. This continuing journey that Timothy is on makes sense because he's saying God is in it. It's God's word. The world won't follow it. He tells them about that. Many many religious leaders won't follow it. He tells them about that. He says you're going to be persecuted. He said it's going to be worth it. Just goes with the territory. And then he says the world needs it though. Just preach the word because it's God's word. You've got a compound word, theopneustos, theos, God Nuo to breathe. God's word, every graphe, all is pasa for every graphe, every writing, the apnustas is God breathed. Now here's the definition of inspiration. That supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon the scripture writers which rendered their writings an accurate record of the revelation or which resulted in what they wrote actually being the word of God. Now, it kind of looks like he's saying some of it is and some of it isn't. He's not. He's drawing a little nuance here about what he's saying about revelation, which I want to explain. So let me explain his definition a little. God parts the Red Sea, ancient Israel. We all know the story. Israelites are fleeing from Egypt. God performs a miracle. The Red Sea parts. They walk through on dry land. That is revelation. It is God revealing himself in a very significant way. But here's the thing I want you to think about. The actual event is revelation. That is God revealing himself both to the nation of Israel and also to the nation of Egypt, really. So God is revealing himself to Israel and to Egypt, whose army did not fare real well in that swimming contest when the sea went back. So you've got God revealing himself. A retelling of that story a week later is not revelation, okay? I want you to think about that. When God did it, it's revelation. If you're telling your your sister or brother about it a week later, that is not revelation. That's you just repeating it. It's absolutely true, but it's not technically revelation. So let's assume that this story is recorded as Moses recorded it with a bunch of other stories about 20 years later. Revelation is when it actually happens. Inspiration, that, is God's active influence on the writer when he records it, maybe 20 years later, to make sure the writing matched the initial event 
perfectly. Inspiration guarantees that revelation is recorded accurately. Now, I, I, I'm going to say this, and some of you are going to think you're going to want to get the, um, the tar and feathers out right away, which some of you are prone to do. I don't need the Bible to be inspired at all to be a Christian. I would follow it because I believe it's that historically accurate. But it claims to be inspired, and that's a big deal. If it wasn't inspired, I believe the history. I'd actually follow Jesus. But the fact that it claims to be inspired, if that's true, which it claims it is, that is a big deal. It's a, sort of another brick in the, in the foundation of what we believe. Revelation benefits an immediate audience. Inspiration guarantees its accuracy at the point of, new word, inscripturation. At the point it becomes scripture, God is guaranteeing the accuracy of the writer as he records the revelation that happened a while ago. All right? And here's a verse in 2 Peter which talks about that process. He says, you know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So there he just talks about God, his activity on the writers. Now, we're going to go back to that main point. And I just want to give you five theories of inspiration. And I want to just sort of walk through them with you to help you understand why this is so important. So the Bible consistently uses phrases that indicate a strong view of inspiration, like, thus saith the Lord, all right? Especially in the prophets. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Amos. They clearly say they're speaking for God. The spirit of the God speaks by me, or the spirit of the Lord speaks through me. David said things like that pretty routinely. Jesus referred to the permanence of the Old Testament law and prophets, sort of putting his stamp of approval on it as God's word. The question is, when it comes to inspiration, what is the extent of it? So I'm just going to give you a few theories, and they're out of the theology book by Millard Erickson, and it was his definition I used, the intuition theory. These people would say, you know, really the writers of scripture, they had a high degree of spiritual insight. They were sort of like, they were sort of like Mozart or Beethoven when it came to spiritual things. They had an artistic gift. They had a heightened ability. They were basically religious geniuses, and so, you know, they did some pretty neat stuff. But that doesn't say there's a guarantee of the accuracy of what they wrote, does it? But that's one theory. Then you've got the illumination theory. This is a view that the influence of the Holy Spirit in the authors involves a heightening of their normal powers. So it's not just that they were spiritual geniuses. God did act on them, and they just did better than they otherwise would have done. And what I like to call this is spiritual Adderall, all right? Not enough of you know what Adderall is. Okay. It's sort of a drug you can take. College kids take it for exams, and I don't think they're supposed to, but it really gives you great focus and so on. And you do better on tests because of it, you know? All right. So that's the illumination theory. You've got this heightened ability. And then there's the dynamic theory. The dynamic theory says the Spirit of God directs the writer to the thoughts that he should have while allowing the writer's own personality to come into play with word choice and things like that. Well, that's interesting. All right, so that just basically means God is influencing the writers, but their personalities and their vocabularies are coming through. Then you've got the verbal theory. 
The influence of the Holy Spirit extends beyond the direction of thoughts to the selection of specific words. God is dictating words. God's word choice comes through. And then you've got people who believe in a dictation theory. God actually dictated the Bible to the writers. Okay, they're sitting there with a pen. They're hearing the voice from heaven. They're writing. They're saying, you know, hang on a second. You got ahead of me there, God? And they're just writing it down, all right? I believe the last three all have elements of the truth. The dynamic theory is true in the sense that different writers have different vocabularies, and that clearly comes through in the scriptures. But most people who are conservative evangelicals would say they believe in the verbal theory of inspiration. The reason they would say that is 2 Timothy 3.16 says, every graphe, writing, word, is God-breathed. That's the claim the verse is making, and that's where verbal inspiration comes from. There are examples in the scripture of the dictation theory. The word of the Lord came to me, and then it seems that God is speaking directly through a prophet. So there are examples of that, especially in the Old Testament prophets. You might say, Paul, does this really matter? Because I'm kind of getting bored going through your list. That's a little harsh from some of you. Well, here's why it matters. Those first two don't guarantee anything. They don't guarantee anything from God. They don't guarantee any accuracy. You're just saying there were some dudes who had some heightened ability to write some pretty good stuff. The last two guarantee it's God's word. The middle one, the dynamic theory, is more of a, about the process, human vocabulary, et cetera, based on different individuals. So I would believe elements of the last three, and number four is really what 2 Timothy 3.16 is teaching. And when you say, does it really matter? I would say it matters a lot. I love this statement by Carl F. Henry. Now, Carl F. Henry, he's probably 130, 140 right now. In 1980, he wrote this. I remain unpersuaded. Now, this is a shot at people like me and people teaching in Bible college and seminary all around the world. This is a shot, and it's a well-deserved shot. I remain unpersuaded that any theological movement like Christianity can dramatically affect the course of the world while its own leaders undermine the integrity of its charter documents. Think about that. He is saying, and he was a professor, he's saying, how on earth can Christianity change the world when the people who say they believe in it keep undermining its own Bible? He's right. When we have a low view of scripture, we offer little to the world. Here's why. Number two, you, I know you're concerned this is the second point in the sermon. There are only two points. So just a little relief, okay? The progression is this. God-breathed words lead to God-changed lives. Paul says it's profitable, it's useful, this God-inspired graphe, God-breathed, every God-breathed writing or word is profitable for teaching, basic word for teaching, for reproof, a word used of conviction, you know, which means there's sin, we actually believe in it, correction, getting us restored to a right state, training in righteousness, the word there is, the word for training is a cognitive word for child, so it's the idea of almost child rearing, only training us in righteousness, so that we will be equipped for every good work. The word of God changes us. We become conformed to its standards. This is all about moral and ethical transformation. The Bible doesn't claim to be inspired, so we'll just be able to say, hey, I believe that, check that one. No, 
It's God's word so that it can create godly people. Interestingly, as the view of the Bible as God's word declines, so does our commitment to moral standards. Shouldn't surprise us. Okay, so now I'm going to jump off the cliff. All right. I'll see you next week, hopefully. Lifeway Research. U.S. Evangelicals. Gender identity is a matter of choice. In the U.S., among church-going people, gender identity is a matter of a choice, agree or disagree. 37% in 2022 of evangelicals say gender identity is a matter of choice. That's over one out of three. People sitting in churches just like Bethany, only in the U.S. A little deeper into the abyss. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. U.S. evangelicals, people just like you, sitting in churches south of the border. In 2016, 19% said, yeah, that, that doesn't apply. In 2022, 28% said that. Just six years later, a huge jump on that issue. Now, interestingly, same survey, abortion is a sin. 2016, 87% agreed. 2022, 91% agreed. So people's view of abortion in the U.S. is actually getting more conservative in the church, while their view of human sexuality and expression of human sexuality is just floating into space off the deep end. Why is that? Because of the massive cultural pressure in the church to accommodate this. Wouldn't we agree with that? I mean, everyone's kids coming home from school, learning this in public school, and wondering why their church can't just keep up. What's going on? Well, there are three terms I want you to know before you leave today. This is not rocket science, all right? Inspiration, inerrancy, authority. If you go to Millard Erickson's theology book, you'll see chapters right in a row. Inspiration, inerrancy, and authority. Because one builds on the other. One is a natural product of the other. So there's many views of inspiration. As a result of that, you have many views of inerrancy, and then you have many views of authority. So the views of inspiration are God's level of involvement in the Bible's inscripturation. Is it really God-breathed? Was God really there? So that's the inspiration part. And then that results in a potential, you know, if you don't believe in strong inspiration, then you've got potential error or a breakdown in the level of truthfulness. That's about inerrancy. Does the Bible have errors? Did God really get it right? Did the humans get it right? And then if there's going to be a lot of errors or it really doesn't reflect God's will, how much authority does it really have in our lives? You have a, a weak view of inspiration? Well, you know, these guys were just religious geniuses. They did a good job writing down all those myths. Well, then you get to inerrancy? Well, of course it's not perfectly accurate. It doesn't really matter. And then you get to authority? Do what you want. Or... God breathed, God guaranteed that the revelation that took place in the ancient world was inspired, that he, he affected the author such that they, they got the revelation perfect, which means every word comes from God, which means, yeah, it's not really got mistakes in it, it's God's word, which means it's kind of got the right to tell you what to do in every area of your life, and you probably should. You will never have 
weak views of inspiration in the church and have people wanting to live their lives for Jesus Christ. You just can't get there. All right, a couple of things as we wrap up. God's word or not, our view of the Bible is everything. It's foundational to everything. It's what we live out. You are going to live out your view of the Bible. If you have a weak view of Scripture, you're probably not going to be deeply committed to the values of Jesus Christ and to changing the world because why would you? Why would I? If you've got a strong view of Scripture, we're kind of compelled to be changed and to try to change the world. Second, the argument for inspiration may be circular reasoning, which it is, I'm not denying that, but it's still legitimate. What I mean by that is this. To the skeptic, this is a weak argument. The Bible claims its own inspiration. Well, who cares, you know? Maybe the Quran does too. I mean, to an atheist or to a skeptic, to, you know, to somebody outside of the faith, they'd say, you know, the Bible claiming something like this is just a, a weak argument. But it does build on the other foundational arguments like we have the best manuscript evidence, the Bible is proven in history. I mean, it's not nothing. It's a legitimate argument. It does raise the stakes quite a bit that not only does it claim to be true, it's saying God is saying this. It raises the stakes. And so it's, it's a legitimate argument. Not our best argument, but it's a legitimate argument. Third, the greatest threat to the church is within, not without. And here's where this is extremely sad. And, and I'm not, I, I know, I'm, I, you know, I'm getting to the point where I'm kind of an old man, but uh, don't let the haircut fool you. Um, I know that as we get older, we tend to talk about how the world is falling apart and it's never going to be the same. But I am telling you that I believe it's going to be extremely hard to staff a church in 20 or 30 years and have people standing in places like this who believe what I'm saying right now. James chapter three has a fascinating verse. It says, be not many teachers knowing you'll want to, you will receive the greater condemnation. And what the point is, you don't really want to be a pastor. You don't want to really be a church leader because God is going to hold you to a greater standard than everybody else because you're leading people and you're telling them what the truth is. So it's a warning from James, you know, be careful what you say to people about God's truth. And the reason that is so relevant is it is increasingly hard to find Bible colleges and seminaries that have a historic view of the scriptures. And God is gonna hold an awful lot of profs responsible for the damage that they have done in the history of our faith. And the greatest threat is not the culture around us. The greatest threat is actually people who would say they're part of our camp and they keep weakening our view of this book. And finally, of course we don't fit in. That doesn't make the Bible untrue. You see, the push to, to, to have a, a more liberal view of the Bible is not because a liberal view of the Bible makes sense academically, it's because we really don't want to do what it says. We don't want to be held to its standards. We don't want to believe that there's really a right and wrong in all these areas when the culture is telling us, hey, if you want to be a relevant church, you need to fit in or people won't come. 
And so all kinds of churches are making the mistake of saying, that's true, we need to fit in, we need to start compromising this so we can keep those people in the church when actually, you know the churches that grow in the world are the churches that can't be moved from a commitment to God's word. Timothy Keller writes, many of us read a certain passage of scripture and say, oh, that's so regressive, it's so offensive. But we ought to entertain the idea that maybe we feel that way because in our particular culture, that text is a problem. In other cultures, that passage might not come across as regressive or offensive at all. Let's look at one example. In individualistic Western societies, we read the Bible, we have a problem about what it says about sex because of sexual freedom. But then we read the Bible, what the Bible says about forgiveness, forgive your enemy, forgive your brother 70 times seven, turn the other cheek. When your enemy asks for your shirt, give him your cloak, and we say, how wonderful, because we're driven by a culture of guilt. But if you were to go to the Middle East, they would think what the Bible has to say about sex is pretty good. They wouldn't have a problem with that. In fact, they might feel it's not strict enough. But when they would read what the Bible says about forgiving your enemies, something we have no problem with, it would strike them as absolutely crazy to forgive at that level. You don't find that in Muslim cultures because their culture is not an individualistic society like ours. It's more of a shame culture than a guilt culture. So he says, let me ask you a question. If you're offended by something in the Bible, why should your cultural sensibilities trump everyone else's? Why should we get rid of the Bible because it offends your culture? Let's do a thought experiment. If the Bible really was the revelation of God and therefore it wasn't the product of any one culture, wouldn't it contradict every culture at some point? Why would we expect we would like everything in the Bible? I don't, but it's God's word. When you read your Bible and you find some part of it outrageous and offensive, that's proof that it's probably true. It's probably from God. It's not a reason to say the Bible isn't God's word. It's a reason to say it is. What makes you think that because this part or that part of God's word is offensive that you can forget Christianity altogether? It's a great analogy. God, we thank you for your word. And I realize that this is today a little bit more of an academic exercise in how we process our faith and how we view your word, but it is something that you claim. And it's incredibly important to the future of our faith that people believe that you have spoken. That people didn't just write down some stories and some myths and concoct the idea of God, but that the God of history spoke into our world perform miracles that were recorded so we would know who you are, we'd know your character. You guided the words of scripture in the writers so that we would know that you have spoken to us. Help us to be faithful to that belief and to those words. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.